Galatians 5:22 through 24. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. The past two weeks, we were looking at the desires of the flesh. I hope you didn't walk away from those two weeks feeling discouraged. Really, Christ always is the answer and hope. But just in case you did walk away feeling discouraged, this is the section where you see the counter of the desires of the flesh. That though there's a battle between the desires of the flesh, there's also desires of the spirit. And if you are in Christ and you've placed your hope and trust in him, then you have the Holy Spirit, God himself, indwelling within you. And every Christian, every Christian produces fruit. So we're going to look at this fruit for the next two weeks. And I hope you'll walk away encouraged, optimistic, feeling as though that the flesh will not win the day. The Spirit of God indwells within you. First, regarding the fruit of the Spirit, I'd like to make a few observations about the fruit as a whole. Recognize that according to Galatians chapter 5, the fruit is singular, not plural. It's not the fruits of the Spirit. It's the fruit of the Spirit. And I don't think Paul just made a mistake grammatically. There's a very intentional purpose behind describing the fruit and then listing out all these different aspects of this fruit. Because the fruit of the Holy Spirit is interwoven. It's interconnected. It's meant to be seen as a whole and not just as individual parts. It's not one fruit, two fruit, three fruit, but all of this encompasses the fruit of the Spirit. And so every person's life sees this fruit interwoven into their lives. So first recognize that the fruit is singular. Second, the fruit is supernatural. These are not character traits. It's not part of your personality. God the Spirit produces this fruit. It's not something that you conjure up within yourself, will yourself to do. And the assumption is that without the Spirit of God, you will not see this fruit in your life. Now I know you might think, but I see these characteristics in non-Christians and even in myself, and maybe I'm not a Christian. Don't I experience love? Isn't, don't I have joy, peace? So I'll explain why this is very particular to a Christian, to someone who knows and trusts and believes in Christ. But know this, Paul made it so clear in Galatians 3, 5. Does he who supply the spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? And Paul equates the spirit of God as the miraculous work of God that is doing a miracle in your heart. You don't just get that out of living life. The Holy Spirit is moving actively in the life of a Christian to produce this miraculous fruit. So keep that in mind. The third is that it's sequential. There is a sequence in understanding this fruit. And the sequence 
is first, God demonstrates this fruit for us himself. And he does so through his son. So every fruit of the spirit is not independent of God as though it's only given to us. Rather, it's God doing the work of this fruit. And we see this all throughout. In fact, that's what the Holy Spirit's role is, according to Jesus in John 16, 14. This is what Jesus said. He, that is the Holy Spirit, will glorify me, Jesus, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. So look just at that verse and you realize that the Spirit of God takes all that Christ has done and he puts it in your heart so that you will bring glory to him and live out your life in faith. That's the work of the Spirit. He doesn't do this independent of Christ. He does it to point us to Christ. And so that aspect is so important. That's constantly why we're thinking of Jesus. And unlike us who we get bogged down by petty jealousies, it's not as though the Holy Spirit is saying, well, if I point out Christ, then I'm not going to get the glory. No, that's not how it works. He is the triune Godhead, Father, Son, Spirit. And every person of the triune Godhead works to bring glory to one another. And so we know that this fruit is then given to us now to live it out and to express it first to God, back to God, and then to others. It really is this symbiotic relationship of God producing fruit to us. We worship God, and then we produce it to others. This is exactly what counters our flesh. So to recognize that, well, aren't all those desires of the flesh, everything that seems so dark and dreary, how can we overcome that? Know that the Spirit of God, the Father, the Son, is actively engaged in the life of the believer to give glory to him, but also to conquer that, those desires of the flesh. We have resources, supernatural, powerful resources to overcome these desires. So with that said, with that as the backdrop, let me look at some of the um, aspects of this fruit. First, love. The word for love here is that very famous Greek word agape. And for scripture, this word is so often used to describe the very unique essence of God's love. It's a love that God gives steadfastly. In the Old Testament, there's a, another word called chesed, and that describes God's steadfast loving kindness that persists and perseveres through all sorts of trials and tribulations. And it's that same love that's translated here that helps us to see that it's a very unique love for only believers of Christ because it's a love that God himself exhibits towards us and therefore it is sacrificial. It's expressed in Christ's atonement and it's understood for us by the spirit. I'm going to, right after Galatians, we're going to do a, a short study on 1 Corinthians 13. It felt like that would be a, just a great chapter to look at as we, once we start gathering together and uh, as we approach the end of this year. So we'll talk a lot about agape love and what that looks like. So I'm not gonna take a lot of time here to discuss this love, but note that this love is sacrificial. It is what Christ expresses through us at the cross. You don't feel this love first so often. You don't, it's, it's not something that 
you just feel this welling up feeling of love. And so therefore out of that feeling you love. So often it's an action based on truth because you are committed in steadfast faithfulness to love. And one of the greatest expressions of this love is Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane. He goes to the father and he says, father, would you remove this cup from me? But then he says, not my will, but your will be done. We know that the cross is the greatest picture of this agape love. But can you imagine at one time, Jesus actually asked the father, would you remove this from me? Clearly, this was not an easy work. It was something that he actually asked for it to not happen. And the will there within God's mystery there in that moment in Christ and in the incarnation of Christ, there is this one desire to say, I don't feel like doing this, but he still did it and he expressed it and he suffered and gave his life. He atoned for our sins. Love is like that. This type of love, agape love. It's not something you always feel, but it's you're committed to. You do. Paul tells us that it's this type of love that, according to Galatians 5, 6, where faith is expressed through. Faith is expressed through this type of love. You don't have faith without having that type of deep commitment of truth-based love. Galatians 5, 13 says, uh, Paul says that we serve, uh, through love, serve one another. Through love, serve one another. That is, we cannot say we have faith in Christ and believe in him if we don't have this love. And this type of love is so often painful. It's a mother's love and being able to care for their, and father's love, to care for their children, even while they're in the midst of rebellion and sin, hardness of heart. How do you love through that? It's definitely not by feelings. It's certainly because of commitment, faithfulness, steadfastness. When we love a wayward child who is unappreciative, we still press on in love. That's love. When we decide to serve others when we are exhausted from a long day, that's love. So many of you are thankful. I'm so thankful for the many of you have served one another and others through this pandemic. And you know what is love? It's when you have no love for junior hires and you decide to be an access mentor for junior hires. That is love. And you might say, I am old, I have no energy, I'm like the least relevant person culturally in this world, but I will do it because I believe in Christ. And therefore, I will serve someone who I have no connection to whatsoever. That's love. Love is not, oh, I feel really, like they just make me feel so good about myself, so therefore, I'm gonna serve as being an access, high junior, uh, access junior high mentor. That's not love. That's sort of natural. It's how the world loves. And that's why you need the Holy Spirit to actually love this way. Because you, you're inclined to certain personalities. Oh, because we're both dads of college students, that's why I connect with this person. Well, that, that's how the world connects. What's our commonality? What's our common interest? And whoever is in our common stage of life, we're all college students, 
So that's why we're going to love one another. Or we're all moms of really young children, so that's why I'm really going to connect. But what about the single person who is in the midst of a bunch of families and decides, I'm going to commit to love these people, or vice versa? See, it's too easy to love in the way the world does. Imagine if Jesus took that type of approach of love. I will love people once they serve me, once they show me love first. Jesus would have been very alone. <laughs> Who would have come to him? Nobody. And he would have certainly not have loved anyone. No, he loved us while we were still sinners. So for those of you who are serving other people, because simply because of Christ, not because you're in that life stage, those people really appreciate you, simply because you are in Christ, you are following what Paul says in Galatians 5.13, through love, serve one another. It's not through your comfort, through the fact that you now have more time because of work. If you're waiting for enough time in your life because you're busy and you say, I don't have enough time, I don't have enough energy, well, you're always gonna be waiting. You're never gonna have enough energy. Love is to love the way Christ loved us. Next is joy. Do not confuse joy with happiness. Happiness can be the result of joy, but there are many circumstances where we are not happy, and yet you can still have joy. According to scripture, joy is what Paul says in Philippians 4.4, in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Joy is only possible if God gives you the joy. And you, again, you might think, aren't there people who are rejoicing and joyous in this world who actually don't have the Holy Spirit? And the answer is no, absolutely not. Um, the, the word that we see in the Greek is for joy is the word kara. And I know some of you have named your children kara. That word should sound familiar to you if, you if you understand even basics of some things about Greek words. And one is, it sounds similar to the word charis, 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 which we get the word grace. And it, it sort of has, kara sort of has that root in it, meaning joy, this type of joy, the kara joy is a gracious joy. It's given to you. It's not something that wells up within your system or because circumstances all work out well that you have this joy. It's, no, you need it from the outside in and it, it just sinks into your soul. And according to this passage of scripture, you don't get this joy without the Holy Spirit giving it to you. Now, I wanna give you a few examples of why this is the case. What is it about joy that we need the Holy Spirit or else it's impossible to have this joy because there's different ways and I could have listed so many more but there are a number of different ways in which this joy is expressed to us in scripture first this is regarding joy is when you're being slandered joy when you're being slandered listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 5 11 through 12 Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Take that first part of what Jesus said and then does rejoice seem to connect with that? 
how many of you would sign up for being reviled and persecuted? And then think the answer is the fruit of that is going to be joy. You don't, that doesn't make sense. So in a world like ours, when you're reviled and persecuted, you should be weeping and mourning. Now, weeping and mourning does come. But we know according to the psalmist that rejoicing always comes in the morning. Joy is certainly not happiness. Just having a smile on your face, laughing. Joy is there's a depth of peace and trust and contentment that God gives you. Trust in his will, his plan. Meaning that as you follow and obey Christ, you will be slandered. Sometimes by those who are closest to you. Sometimes your own family can slander you. In the Muslim world, there are Christians who are literally sought out, um, sought out by their own parents who want to be murdered because they have turned to Christ. But it's not, it doesn't just take that type of example. That can happen even in your own home. Maybe you raise your kids in the Lord and they rebel against you and they leave your home and they, you, you are the, the perpetrator of all the wrongs of their life and they start reviling you. It happens. As long as you are in this world, you will face trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. I really appreciate what John Piper says here about this topic. He says, our joy in Christ in spite of slander, is what shows the slander or the preciousness of Christ. And this is what they need more than anything. Therefore, paradoxically, though the tears may flow when our loved one reviles the name we love, rejoicing in the face of that reviling testifies to the reality and preciousness of the one they need so badly. It is an act of love for their soul, not indifference to their lostness. Meaning when you are being reviled by even someone whom you love because you are following Christ, you're being persecuted. Your re reputation is being slandered. Maybe to friends, family, maybe to the internet. The answer is not to revile back. That's how the world responds to that. To go back onto Twitter and come up with all your defense mechanisms. But the answer is actually to rejoice. To as John, uh, John and Peter recognized when they were beaten for proclaiming Christ, they rejoiced for they could be, they could suffer for the name of Christ. There is a, a, a way in which we can win people to Christ and it's not going to be to punch back. It's going to be to rejoice, to praise God, to place our hope in him, to trust in him. And there is no way you do that within your own strength. That's just not possible. It is impossible to be slandered and reviled and you respond with mercy, with rejoicing. It's a fruit of the spirit. Joy also when suffering shame. Acts 5.41, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. There are going to be times where you're embarrassed. You're put to shame because you're following Christ. Again, it could be by loved ones. It could be by our culture, our world. Maybe following Christ means that you don't fit into your peer group. Um, at work, 
Maybe people are gossiping about you because you have decided to take a stand of integrity. And now people are literally shaming you. You know, teenagers, you're at school, you decide to stick up for someone who is picked on by everybody else or thought of as a loser. And rather than deciding to um, keep your composure and be cool, to fit into a certain crowd, you decide to go and sit over there and suddenly you're thought of as, well, you're a loser too, if you just do that. To have joy in the midst of that, impossible, right? That's impossible. But joy is, again, it's not, oh, you're happy. There's a mourning, there's a loss, there's a grieving. But with that grieving comes a rejoicing in the morning, a trust a strength, a power that the world cannot know. And God's not just going to take that and sort of say, oh, good job. He's going to empower you to live this life in faith. What you are investing in in that moment of having joy in the midst of suffering is going to give you so much more delight and power for the future of your life and eternally. As Peter and John note, Third is joy when experiencing pains and sorrows and poverty. Second Corinthians 8, 1 through 2. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overwhelmed in a wealth of generosity on their part. You know, I've seen this in Africa, actually. I've seen it where people who are impoverished who are aff- afflicted, and, and I know some of you have as well. You go and we have much to learn from people who are suffering, impoverished, and yet there's joy. It's not, and I don't think it's, it, it's a falsehood to think that they're just singing and dancing and, and just trying to in some way act like they're actually rejoicing. No, if you talk to them, I hear pain, I hear sorrow, I hear grieving, but it never stays there. It moves to, but Jesus knows he took on that shame. He, gives, he lifts me up. He gives me strength. So joy when experiencing pains and sorrows and poverty is not to turn a blind eye to it and not to say that you don't actually suffer, but it's to decide based on truth, the truth of God's word and his promises, that you will not give in to your feelings and just simply deciding to let that control your life. Joy when experiencing injustice. Look at Acts 16, 23 to 25. When they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison. The jailer put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. I often have read um, books like The Insanity of God by Nick Ripkin, or you you read about books about Christians who have suffered, Brother Andrew, and, and you hear about the power of songs when people are suffering, especially when they're imprisoned for the sake of the gospel. And I've often wondered when we're singing these songs of worship and praise, would you sing them with joy and delight if you were suffering unjustly for the name of Christ? 
If you are a follower of Jesus and you've been following him and you will, you will suffer for the sake of Christ someday. In some way, small or large, you will suffer. Will you sing hymns? I love how Luke records, and the prisoners were listening to them. See, the joy of the Lord, when it comes out, it is your strength. It's not just yours, though. It, it spreads out to others. It is remarkable when the Holy Spirit does this transformative work of producing this fruit in your life, and suddenly, those who are listening, maybe for the first time, their hearts are melted. Their ears are unstopped, and they, they can actually hear Christ. They see him. Surely, those who... Um, exact their vengeance themselves or defend themselves and fighting all the time, arguing and screaming and yelling and losing themselves to sin, the desires of the flesh. I don't think too many people are listening to them to want to say, what's going on? How, how, why are they like this? No, they're probably thinking, of course you're like that. If someone punches you, you punch them back. But truly to turn the other cheek, to be able to say, I'm going to trust in the Lord and I'm going to do that, which is hard. That's supernatural. It just can't happen by your own strength. So this joy, it, it shows itself when you receive news that you have terminal cancer. You have six months to live. And if you take those six months and you live your life in faith, and the joy of the Lord is your strength. Again, it doesn't mean you don't have pain, sorrow, grieving, trial. But how will you respond? The one who has the Holy Spirit produces joy. There's, a, there's something odd about it. It's supernatural. Or when you're on your deathbed, and I've often thought about this, what are you going to be like on your deathbed? Is it going to be fear and anger and dismay? I've often heard of people who, on their deathbed, there's two types. There's the fear, dismay person, and anger, and there's the contentment, peace, and joyous person. They're singing hymns. They're worshiping. They're giving praise to God. I've seen it personally, both. And it's stark, the difference. The person who's dying with fear and dread and dismay, the people around that deathbed they feel that fear and dread and dismay. It's, it's contagious. But when you're around a person who's dying and they, even in pain, excruciating pain, they're worshiping, they're, they're rejoicing, they're trusting. It is remarkable the influence that one person has on those people gathered around. It's striking. That only happens through kara, gracious joy. God-given, supernatural, Holy Spirit, fruit joy. And then peace. Peace, like love and joy, again, has this sequential, vertical, horizontal element to it. Because first of all, the Holy Spirit over and over again reveals to us as a fruit that we have peace with God. Romans 5.1 tells us that. And... I can't tell you how important that peace is so that in order to have internal peace 
for yourself, you need to always go back to that waterfall flow of the peace that you have with God. When you have that waterfall flow, you never run out of water. You always go back to it and say, oh yeah, now I remember why I have peace. Um, I can't think of, you know, when throughout this whole process, and I'm sorry for so many of my uh, sermon illustrations are about building construction, <laughs> just sort of comes with the territory of what's on my mind. But, you know, we had an inspection this week and it, it just is so striking how much power the inspector has. You know, they, they have a lot of power actually over us. And the recourse is so little, no matter how unjust they can be, we almost literally can't do much. And it's, as Thomas prayed, God can, he, he has the power to stir the hearts of kings. So I believe that. But this man who comes in, he thinks he has so much power. But he's a little man. He's nothing, right? Our God has the power of the universe. He judges our souls for eternity. Now that is power. Now if I'm concerned about a building inspector and wanting to please him, how much more the God of the universe who not, he owns a cattle on a thousand hills, he owns the stars in the sky, should we not fear him far more than any other person in, or nation or power in this whole world, Satan is still infinitely less than him. It is an incredible thing to know then that we have peace with this God. And I don't think we really appreciate peace with God because we don't see how big God is, how small we are, and how much we've offended this really, really powerful God. Until we see that contrast, only then does peace with God really sink to our souls and it impacts the way we live. Because without that peace and having that deep in your heart, then I really won't appreciate peace with other people. With the fact that, wow, I can have peace with this person. And I won't strive for peace with people if I don't have this in view. The Holy Spirit prompts us again and again to remember this. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.19, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. That is a vertical and horizontal peace statement. God is reconciling himself to the world, entrusting us to the message of reconciliation with one another. And because of this peace, we can have peace with others. We can have peace in marriage with our children, with our parents, with our friendships, with our work. If you don't have peace in any of those relationships, please stop and think, have you made that first vertical peace with God, the great awesome creator God and you and God stepping in and reconciling you to himself through the cost of his son. I don't think we think enough about that. And that's why our peace with others is being impacted. It's not to say that the other will respond always well, but if I've already decided I'm not going to do anything, they have to first come to me 
there is something seriously wrong. Our vision of our peace with God is off. Look at the very next verse. So I quoted to you of chapter 5, verse 19 of 2 Corinthians. The very next verse, verse 20 says this, Therefore we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. So Paul's whole point is peace with God is the key upon which we have this now call to go and make peace with others and be an instrument of God's peace for others. How does this work? Even when we are unjustly wronged, we always remember what Christ has done for us, always. We remember he was punished on behalf of our sins, and so we fight for peace with others. So I really want you to try this. The next time you have a conflict with somebody, stop in that very moment and think about what Jesus has done for you at that cross. Try the best that you can to do that. And what you will find is that the Holy Spirit who is indwelling in you will actually cause you to see, you know what? Is what I'm fighting for really worth this conflict? Is, is there a place for me to go and seek out reconciliation because of what Christ has done for me? The power of what Christ has done, it really does bring about peace with others or to the point where what we can do. Sometimes it's not always reciprocated, but we still seek it. Next, we have patience. Like the other aspects of the fruit, the Bible emphasizes God's patience towards us. Scripture says that God is, the way that the Bible describes it is he is long-suffering. One of the most beautiful descriptions of this type of patience is found in Romans 2.4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? The Lord is so patient with us, isn't he? He is so patient that in his kindness, he actually leads us to repentance. Now, how is God's kindness shown in repentance? If you've been in a conflict with a person and you know then what grace repentance is. Repentance is a change of heart, especially a hardened heart. Literally, sometimes you can see a hardened heart melt. The, the anger and the bitterness just melt away. And God waits for us. Even when we rail against him, even when we stubbornly refuse to yield so that he can give us time for repentance. And we should never think that God is so unjust because he judges sinners. Always remember that God is ever patient with a sinner. And so when we see that type of change and heart, it's a grace, it's a kindness. But we need to be willing to wait to have it happen. That's called long suffering. And sometimes it means bearing with people who are difficult, who aren't going to always be so easy in your life. I think if we're honest with ourselves, we want to strip away all the difficult people in our lives and just have the easy people. Just to let you know, you are a difficult person. I am a difficult person. So stripping away all the difficult people, somehow you'd have to strip yourself away too. No, what we need is not to try to somehow artificially cut off the difficult people because it never really works because you're there. 
Instead, we have to be patient, long-suffering. And when you do so, you will see repentance because God does the work of changing, transforming, bringing back, melting hearts. And if we could just wait it out, we would see the beauty of that type of repentance. That's what God does for us. We need to be able to do it for others. Christians remind themselves and one another that our God is a long-suffering God with us. He's most patient with me. And if I forget this, then I'm just giving myself up to Satan's schemes because Satan knows how to wait us out. See, he knows our tendencies. He knows that we're not patient. We're not willing to be long-suffering. And so even if we change for a moment, he knows if I could just wait this person out, I know eventually they'll go back to the way they always were. Listen to how Martin Luther describes this very process. When the devil cannot overcome by force those who are tempted, he seeks to overcome them by perseverance. He knows that we are earthen containers that cannot last long or hold out against many knocks and violent blows. So he overcomes many people by long repeated temptations. To overcome these continual assaults, we must be patient, looking not only for the repentant behavior of those who wrong us, but also for the end of those temptations the devil raises up against us. Now the devil is patient, but our God is far more patient. The devil can wait, but through the power of the fruit of the Holy Spirit, we can be long-suffering and wait out even the devil waiting us out. In Christ, we have won. Do not then give up so quickly. Do not yield on people, on yourself, on change, on sanctification. God wants to do this work. He is doing the work. The Holy Spirit is changing you. I know, and he is changing your loved ones. Do not give up praying. Do not give up fasting. Do not give up your heart of conversations. Don't think to yourself, well, if I, I had that one conversation with my child and they didn't change, so I'm just gonna give up. Or, you know, if I had worship with my family once and nothing happened. They're all the same, so I'm just gonna stop. Oh, my friends, the devil is waiting you out. He knows what you're like. He knows you're gonna give up. You have the fruit of the Spirit, his promise is that once he changed you and he's now indwelling in you, he's going to do the work. Trust him. Wait patiently for the Lord. Remember, we're not talking about character traits. Someone can be more patient than others just by disposition. I'm not talking about that. This is supernatural stuff. There's some of you are thinking, but I'm not patient. Trust me. I, I've said this before. I'm the president of the not patient club. I mean, it, it's, it's just, I have that badge. But praise be to God that the Holy Spirit indwells in me and in you. It takes that type of power. When we look at these aspects of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, I hope you see the Savior's love in each one of these for you. Hasn't our God shown us through Christ this very reality? So regarding love, 1 John 
And this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. What about joy? Hebrews 12, 2, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Peace, Romans 5, 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith in Christ, through what he has done, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Patience, 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Christian, you are not alone in battling the flesh. Our God has done the work. He has done and proven himself on the cross. He has given you that power through his spirit indwelling within you so that not only can you battle the flesh, you can win in Christ. The atoning work of Jesus is our, is our road to freedom. But we have to believe it. We have to turn to him. We have to trust him. Let's prepare our hearts for communion. Father, we know that there is no amount of willpower, strength, gifting, talent, change of circumstances that could bring about these fruits, this fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience. These are not personality traits. These are supernatural works of your spirit. We're so thankful that in Christ Jesus, when we believe and trust in him, we have the greatest power in the world within us far more powerful than any atomic bomb, any um, technological advancement. We have the power to be able to love when it is impossible to do so. To have joy in the midst of reviling. To have peace when there is no peace. To have patience with those around us when they don't deserve it or when we don't have it within us. And all of this was made possible through what we are looking at right here today, this visible expression of a historical reality that Jesus, you gave your life for us. Help us to remember that, O oh Lord, as we celebrate this wondrous work of your son and the power that we have because of that work. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.